Welcome to A Tribe Called Yes, the podcast that brings you closer to the world's most notorious risk takers, trailblazers, and enemies of the status quo. Now, here's your host, Darren K. Roberts. Hola, tribe. If Prince, Marine Dowd, and Oprah had a love child, it would be our guest for this episode, Spike Gillespie. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, GQ, Esquire. Okay, you get the picture. She's a good writer. And today, she serves as one of the most sought-after wedding officiants in the world. Put your listening caps on and get ready to learn how to say yes with Spike Gillespie. Spike, welcome to the tribe. Glad to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I have so much to cover, so I want to start with... If I were to pull you out of your 11th grade English class into the hallway and ask you, what are you going to be when you grow up? What would be the answer then? Of course, my joking answer pops into my head is, I think by 11th grade, I had already finished all the English classes that were available. <laughs> oh, think, you're the advanced yeah, student. I, I, so I was kind of this. It, it, well, English was my thing. I just gobbled it up. You know, I don't necessarily think that I knew that being a writer or writing for a living was something I could really do, but I always dreamed of writing books. I come from this background where I was told women don't go to college, or if you do, you have to be a teacher and uh, so were people explicitly saying this, like in your home? Oh, or yeah. Like- at my home and my high school guidance counselor. I, I mean, fast forward past 11th grade. So I graduated near the top of my, not at the tippy top of my class, but near the top of my class and like fifth or something. And I had been accepted at a very prestigious school, James Madison University. Mm-hmm. I've been accepted at Rutgers. And I'm saying it with a smile on my face. It wasn't funny at the time. My parents were like, my dad especially, like, women don't go to college and college is for posers. We don't have money. And my high school counselor was sort of like, yeah, well, your parents don't have the money and just go to the state school and be a teacher. Now, the word just, Hmm. obviously teachers, some of my favorite people are teachers. I teach some now. And the state school, it's awesome that it's there. But the point is, I had this big opportunity and everybody said, no, you can't do that. Nobody said, hey, You could get scholarships or you're pretty bright or whatever. Everybody kind of just. Let me ask you this. Did it ever come up while you were applying? Did someone say, you know, why are you submitting these applications to these schools? You're crazy. I can't remember that Hmm. part, but I can remember this story. Fast forwarding. So I graduated high school in 82. I eventually sort of ran away to college to uh, the University of South Florida. Fast forwarding to maybe 1995 or 1996. By then I was a writer and there was an article about me in USA Today. My high school guidance counselor, who I had not heard of, heard from and forever, he sent me this email. I still remember it was in all caps, like congratulating me and blah, blah, blah. And I was still a very angry young woman back then. And I sent him back a note and I said, you know, don't congratulate me. You held me back and you were so busy chasing after the student teacher and Jim having an affair with her. You didn't have time to push me to do. I was mad. (laughs) You know, I was really mad. But I tell the story because he wrote back to his credit and he apologized deeply. And he said, you're right. And my kids from my first marriage feel the same way. And I I didn't pay as much attention to your opportunities as I could have. And I'm, I'm sorry. It was a very powerful email exchange. 
Did you have to think through before hitting the send button? Like, did you write no, that email? No, I, I need to hire someone to keep me from hitting the send button. No, but I don't, I'm not saying as a, in terms of stopping you, but was this just a reaction that you knew as soon as you received his email? Like, let me set the record straight on this. Yeah, I was really, <laughs> I was very irritated. It's sort of like maybe feeling like he was taking some credit. I mean, what was that, like 20 20 years ago. Now, yeah. I, I still get irritated and angry a lot, but I've spent a lot of time thinking, meditating, getting older. And I just, that was a strong reaction that I had against him. But at the same time, I can look back and see how the word no has been such a motivator for me. Hmm. Right? What does writing mean to you? Well, right now, more than anything, writing is healing. I don't write as much as I used to, but I work with writers a lot and memoir writing. And I look back over what writing has done for my life and it's very healing. Hmm. Mm-hmm. What would you say, because you've written eight titles, the one that I love the most, Pissed Off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when did you realize this is something you couldn't get away from? Because it seems like this is what a lot of the things that you do now grew out of that passion for writing. Was there an aha moment or did you just kind of look back and say, man, I, I can't get enough of this? Like, What started... I never have a short answer. I only have long <laughs> answers. So I look back and I think, and I'm, I am curious about it. It's like, how did I wind up being a writer? And I think a lot of it ties into my childhood and the problems in, I know I've detailed a lot in my writing, a very difficult childhood. My dad was mentally ill and very, you know, he's undiagnosed. I'm not going to try to diagnose him here, but it was a reign of terror. You know, and if you would have asked me as a second grader or third or fourth or fifth grader, why do you read so much? I would think it was just for enjoyment. And I understand now it was sanctuary and escape. And in our family, you weren't allowed to speak. When my father pulled up, when his car pulled up, that was it. You couldn't speak. You couldn't speak at the dinner table. You couldn't ask for things. I remember once being outraged and sort of writing this note to explain my outrage because we weren't allowed to talk to him and him ripping it up and yelling at me. And I'm relating that to writing because writing was a place, even if I couldn't write to him, obviously that experiment failed. I could write like in my journals and my short stories. I got my first typewriter when I was maybe eight. Hmm. Writing was an escape and a sanctuary and a place to talk. You know, I'm doing air quotes. That was really safe, you know. And in that way, it kind of saved me. And then later, writing saved me in other ways. You know, I wrote this furious letter to the editor in college and um they called about me what? well i had a flat top in or it was probably I, I started out with kind of a mullet and it went to a flat top i had a very short punk rock haircut in i guess it was 83 or 84 and i was walking across campus and these frat boys in a pickup truck drove by and started screaming obscenities at me and how ugly and horrible i was and so i wrote this fabulously passionate hyperbolic letter to the editor about how about if I criticize you for not wearing shoes or blah, 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 you know, just like tearing apart the SIGAPs. And I even almost got the, I almost got the fraternity name wrong. I'm like, oh, that would have ruined my career before it started. But anyways, when I sent that letter in, an editor called me and was like, we want to run this as a guest column. And then they hired me as a reporter, you know, so my need to write or be heard or speak out, that has, it's been my tour guide through life you know hmm. <laughs> so they hire you you start writing in college i mean for the paper yeah uh-huh and what was your 
shtick. I mean, kind of like your... angry punk <laughs> rock girl, woman, girl, woman. I mean, cusp. You know, I'm not saying yeah. girl in a dismissive way. I was, I think I was 19 when I got my first column. First, I went from that guest column. Then I was writing features. So I was interviewing all these new wave bands. I was so in. It was awesome. You know, I think I compared every lead singer to Richard Butler from <laughs> the Psychedelic Furs. And I just, I loved that. But then they gave me this column and it was called Bloody Monday. And I would just like rail. I would rail against the fraternities. I would rail against the Catholic Church. I would rail against this or that. Or I would write like a detailed account of my first trip to the gynecologist. And all this, it's same now. I mean, you can hop on Twitter or Facebook and whatever. The world is filled with this. There is nothing scandalous anymore. But back in 84, you saw right about going to the gynecologist, people were outraged. They'd write in these furious letters like, she must be stopped. And, and, and you You're know, on the most wanted list. Yeah, here. like when I wrote about the Catholic Church and how much I disagreed with it. There were letters from dioceses all over Florida, just like off with her head, off with her head. And my newspaper advisor, Leo Stalnicker, if I remember his name, he's, I think he's dead now. We can talk about him. He went on record with the Tampa Tribune, which was the city daily. It got blown up. It was a slow news day. And the Tampa Tribune was writing a piece about how blasphemous I was. And they asked Leo for a statement. And he said my writing was trash and shouldn't be published. This was the college newspaper advisor. I mean, again, I'm, you, you know, I know we're not, I know this is audio and you can't, you can see me smiling, yeah. but it really wasn't funny at the time. Like I, I had this series of kind of mean white men in my life, you know, that yeah. just would tell me no, but I kind of responded to that. Like, I'll show you Leo, right? Yes. <laughs> and it seems like you had license to write what you want to. I mean, so you. Oh Yeah. Was there any check on, I mean, you wrote something on a Sunday. If you said, this is what we're running tomorrow, was there anyone to say, well... Well, there were the editors. And gosh, I'm I'm enjoying smiling about this because at the time I was furious. Like, oh, the passing of time. It's a beautiful thing. It helps, right? So I had written this piece in, I guess, maybe 85 or it was maybe my junior year. And it was... There's going to be a race, a car race in St. Petersburg, right, you know, not too far from Tampa. And I was dating this terrible guy who loved Hunter Thompson. So I tried to do this sort of Hunter Thompson-esque piece, very derivative, and where I took the concept of Death Race 2000, which is this terrible movie about running people over, <laughs> and somehow mashing up the Hunter Thompson, the Death Race 2000, and the all the senior citizens in St. Petersburg and creating this sort of real-life video game where people are getting run over. It's terrible. Even though I'm like, this is terrible. And my editor, Tony Panaccio, and I, I do mention names for a reason— I said, if you have any problems with this, let me know. And he didn't. And he didn't run it. And so I think it was this moment of rage where it was sort of, I quit, you're fired, you know. And there was this great outpouring of letters. When they, To their credit, they let me write this very dramatic, I'm out of here, freedom of speech, <laughs> screw you kind of a thing. And all these people wrote in. And the fraternities wrote in. And they're like, we're going to miss her. They loved, <laughs> the, you know. Because there were some edgy, you know, they, they probably... Well, it sounds like they sort of admitted it at the end, but you were educating them, it seems like, right? I mean, I, this is a guess. view they weren't hearing around the mess hall in their fraternity house. I mean, and I, I don't know if they ever changed their behavior. I mean, I remember once for a fundraiser, they had to smash a car where they brought an old car on and a sledgehammer and painted names on it like Nixon and Hitler. And my name was right. Like people could pay money to 
take a hammer to my name. Weird. It's all so strange looking back, right? <laughs> but I'd mentioned Tony because after all of that outrage, you know, along comes Facebook and Tony messaged me, emailed me or Facebook me or something many years later, just saying, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Or we should have handled it differently. I kind of have a history of people 20 years <laughs> after the fact saying, hmm, you know, maybe we. So this is what I wonder. It's like this whole perspective. When you're in the moment, it is the most, whatever this catastrophe or exhilarating moment, it's the biggest thing you know. And I'm 37 now, so I'm looking back on all these moments. Like I applied to Harvard Law School, and that was the only place I wanted to go to this law school, and I got waitlisted three straight years. And it was the end of the world each time I got the letter, like, no, you know, and calamity. And, and then you look back on it, and you think to yourself, why was I so wound up? Like, I mean, do you... Uh, so I was talking to my writing workshop last night about this and how there's this exercise I, I don't do nearly often enough. In fact, hardly at all. But let's say I'm in this moment of rage. Like, let's say there's a rejection from an editor. I don't really pitch too many letters anymore. Let's say there's a breakup of a relationship or friendship argument. And I'm feeling that reaction right away. I might say to myself... Think back a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago to like when you got rejected by another editor or broken up with by a different boyfriend. Do you remember how mad you were and what were the specifics? Well, I can probably pull up the emotional reaction and remember how mad I was. But one, if you ask me for the specific details, I can't remember. And two, if you ask me, do I care? No, I don't. Like I remember going through my last divorce, hopefully my last divorce ever, I was paralyzed. I was crippled emotionally and couldn't move. And I felt like I was going to die. I mean, it was so horrible. I cried for months and months. And now I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I got out of that, A. But B, except for instances like this where people ask me to reflect on things, I don't really think about that stuff at all. Hmm. But in the moment, it was catastrophe, you know? Yeah, I, I wonder... I'm trying to think through if there's a way, as you build up these life experiences, is there a way for you to sort of transport yourself when you're having a real-time catastrophe, you know, in quotation marks? Is there a way to transport yourself back, like you do, almost as a good exercise, and say, okay, how did I feel? What were the details? Obviously, I'm still alive. It wasn't as earth-shattering as I thought. Because I deal with, you know, teaching Students, I'm always, they didn't get the Goldman Sachs interview. End of the world. Boyfriend got a job in New York and I didn't. End of the world. Girlfriend's moving to D.C. And it's tough because they look at me as kind of the old guy behind the desk talking. And I say, you know, I hate to tell you this, but 10 years from now, this will not be one of the plots on your life trajectory. Like you'll think through and say, wait, what was that? And it's so it is so hard though in the moment to yeah. not you know feel those really strong reactions. And when something I learned in therapy that I try to remember is it's not that you're ever going to have this one moment of triumph or this one sustained note like I did it, I I dotted all the i's and crossed all the t's and everything's perfect and I'm going to sustain that note. First of all, that would be really boring. But you know the other thing is like 
my therapist would always say, you get the lag time down, right? So let's say you and I are great friends and you totally piss me off and I'm furious with you. Hopefully I'm not going to do the 20 year grudge on you. And I can do the 20 year grudge. I can do the 40. I'm old enough to have done like a 50 year grudge. So the thing is for me to be self-reflective, you know, self-accountability, and then either bridge back to our friendship or at least make peace with it where I'm not carrying around, you know, I hope you fall off a cliff or whatever. You know what I mean? Like at least just get to a neutral place at best. But that's really hard. I can't even remember the original question. Oh, perspective. Perspective is so hard. It's part of what I like about getting older. Hmm. And I still have my moments of reacting, like as recently as, what's today? Like Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> two days ago. Oh, yeah, or Tuesday, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, sure. I yelled. I, I yelled as recently as a few days ago. And we were having a conversation before the taping about within the span of maybe three or four months, you lost two cars to natural disasters. Oh, yeah. And one to a, a UT student. <laughs> one to a UT student. <laughs> And even that one was, it wasn't she was driving poorly. She was pulling out on the, across four lanes of Lamar out of P. Terry's. It was an act of kindness. People were encouraging her, go forward, go forward. She's so focused on their kindness. She doesn't see me in the center lane and crunch. But yes, I wow. lost. So I lost three cars in like a week. So the first car was? In a flood in Houston. Flood in Houston. Mm-hmm. You get another car. The rental car so I could run pick my mom up at the airport in Austin. That gets smashed as soon as I pick up my mom. So then I bought a used car and a tornado ripped across my front yard and dropped a tree on the new used car. So if, if we were there, if we were there in the moment, like what is your instant reaction when you open the front door and... So my son was visiting from New York with his girlfriend and they were on one side of the house. My boyfriend and I were on the other side of the house and the storm comes through. It didn't even dawn on me that it was a tornado. And I've been through a lot of hurricanes, but I'm like, this is just a very bad thunderstorm. So bad. It woke us all up. We're all in the dining room. Then we start walking around the house. Water is pouring in and it's not occurring to me. The roof has been ripped off. Like I'm not, it's four in the morning. It's very disorienting. It's not a day-to-day experience. I had two weddings the next day. I performed weddings and I knew I had to rest. I knew I needed to do whatever I could to get some rest. So I lay back down after the storm, lay back, lie back. I'm an English major. Anyway, I heard the birds singing. This was before the dawn. After a tornado took out 26 trees, I hear birds singing. And I'm like, how did those birds survive? They weigh ounces. Like, how did they not get destroyed? The next morning, I step out into my yard It's like what you see in a news report where they look for the worst spot to film. There were just trees everywhere. My chickens had to be jaws of life out of the coop. They survived. But a tree went into the ground so hard and so fast that it's still stuck in there. We can't get it out of the ground like a spike into the ground. My neighbors had to come over with chainsaws to rescue the chickens. And um, so the aftermath, actually, it was a rolling aftermath. First, it was, okay, we're all alive. Check. Then it was trying to get some rest. I hear birds singing. Then it was get to the weddings. And then in the days after that, when I could see the damage and think about it, we could have been killed. I mean, not like hurt, but we could have been wiped out. So wow. I had a rolling. If we're rolling this. And you said something about the lag time. That's if I can trace back to my worst breakups and not just from like a romantic sense, but great friendships that have 
gone awry. You don't provide any runway, right? There's there's no, it's like, okay, I'm going to give you three days and then we're done, right? And looking back on it, I think, what, is, uh, what changes in three days, really? Right. <laughs> Although there's that thing about sitting for three days, which is, I'm sorry, the, what do we call it? First Nations the natives, the locals, yes. uh, you know, that if you sit on something and meditate for three days, mm. but no, what does change in three days? I don't know. And that thing about whether it's a friendship or a romance or whatever, that severing, it's so deeply painful. And I've had many breakups. I mean, I've written about so many relationships and it's just like each time one ends, I'm like, I don't want this to be another chapter in my life for a learning lesson. I want to get this right. Damn it. And I get so focused on that I did it wrong or that I failed or that I suck. Like that's a time when my dad's voice comes back into my head, despite a lot of hard work. Like, see, nobody will ever love you. Or you suck. Like all this negative stuff will come in. And getting the lag time down is about, you don't have to choose a camp. You don't have to choose the camp of like, you suck. You'll never get it right. Or the camp of like, this is a life lesson and I'm so grateful for it. It's like, it's messy, right? Mm. Life is messy. And I think getting the lag time down is getting back to whatever my version of the center is. And like, you know what? I'm going to be okay. Like after the tornado, I'm living, I'm breathing. Mm. I will figure this out. And then 10 years from now, I'll perspective one. Mm. You know, and I, I do want to qualify that remark because we were talking before we started recording about how I work a lot or hang out a lot with friends who've lost children. And, you know, there are some catastrophes in life that I don't I don't necessarily think that 10 or 20 or 100 years will ever give you perspective. You know, there's there's tragedies of war and there's the really big stuff. But I also think sometimes when people are in pain, you know, my boyfriend got the job in New York and I didn't. In the initial push, I think pain is pain. Hmm. You know, like, ow, I hurt. I feel pain. I have to respond, you hmm. know. Is there a daily practice that you have that you think makes you a better person? Is there something you do on a daily basis that... I do. I meditate every day. I meditate for 21 minutes a day. It's a funny number, <laughs> but 21. I have a time. I use a, I use an app called Insight Timer and I set the bells for three minutes so that every time the bells ring, it's it's an opportunity to get back to focus. Hmm. I've been meditating since, I, I don't know, for like 16 years. And you're never going to have a clear mind. I mean, never. Sorry, spoiler alert. But the <laughs> bells are a reminder to just like focus on breathing in, I'm breathing out. And I, I meditated off and on from my start in 2000. But ever since December of 2012, I've suffered um, deep depression my whole life. And, and that was my last deep depression. I'm like, I can't stand this anymore. Like, I don't want to feel even a, a hint of a suicidal ideation. I don't want to be stuck in my bed. I wonder if I can beat this thing with meditation. I choose my words carefully because, well, depression is it's a hard thing. Some people need medication. Some people are going to be chronically depressed. I've been very fortunate in that in practicing every single day since December 2012, I've managed to keep my depression at so bay. Every single day, 21 mm -hmm. minutes, some days, if I'm having a really, really hard time, I'll bump it up to 40 minutes or an hour. And even though I'm non-theistic and a really good way to get me going is to proselytize, here's a secret I don't usually tell people. When I'm having a super hard time, I'll meditate for 40 minutes or an hour. And in my mind, silently, I will chant the serenity prayer. Really? 
Yeah, because it's a really good one. It's a good, it's a mantra, it's a short, right? So it's a repetition of words. And even though I might not believe in a singular God, I don't think I'm the creator of the universe myself. It's just a really good one. It's just a real reminder that some things we can change, some things we can't change. Try to pay attention and figure out the difference. So the spoiler is like, I want to go back to that. You said, hey, you never get this clear I think I've tried it and picked it up and put it back down. I kept thinking that I was supposed to reach this sort of... Enlightenment. Maybe not enlightenment, but at least blank slate phase. And I don't want to think about the Google calendar or did I make Dylan's lunch last night? But they creep in. So for someone who's done it for so long to say, I don't think there's a, a complete clearance of thought. Right. Like, right. Like, well, there's a great bumper sticker that I love, but it's totally false. It, it says meditation. It's not what you think. Right. Hmm. But the thing is, I mean, you can look at interviews with monks who are like way further down the path. Not like it's not a competition, <laughs> but we're Americans. Right. We're competitive by nature. But in my experience, you're always going to have stuff come in. So I wrote I'll do my little self-promotion. You know, I wrote this book about meditation called Sit, Stay, Heal. In it, I just give some pointers. And when I get emails from readers, the single sentence that people love in the book the most is, you're not doing it wrong. Because, you know, there's so, we set these goals. And another thing I do, so let's say Google Calendar, Dylan's Lunch, throw out one more thing that might pop into your head. I didn't grade enough papers last okay, night. So, okay. So, so, we'll, so what I would say is as those things are coming into your head, I would pick a keyword for each of those, like hmm. calendar, Dylan grading, calendar Dylan grading. So rather than a more typical meditation technique is when a thought comes in, it's like a cloud in the sky. You acknowledge it. Hello, thought. Goodbye, thought. I talk about like in the book, Go Dog Go. (laughs) Hello, goodbye. But sometimes that thought is going to come back in. And I have some OCD stuff. So it's really going to come in. If it's not on my list, I'm like, what if I forget it? So I would grab three words. Google Dylan grading, Google Dylan grading. And I would use that as my immediate mantra just silently in my head. And I would just say it over and over again, because what two things happen? One, it becomes a nonsense sound. You know, it Hmm. it relieves you of the worry. But two, when you come back up to the surface, if you say those three words out loud, you've got your list. So you know, oh, I got to check the calendar. I got to make lunch. I got to grade the paper. So there's sort of a dual benefit. For me, yeah. It's yeah. kind of like, what's the martial art where you use the other guy's energy? Is it oh, judo yeah. or I don't know, whatever yeah, one it is. Something. It's like you, you take that. So instead of fighting it, like instead of fighting it and fighting it and then thinking I'm a bad meditator or meditation's not for me or I suck or whatever, negative affirmations. What's the opposite of affirmation? Whatever. Um, yeah, I'm yeah. a liberal arts guy. I should know this. Well, I got well, no clue. You, you can send me a note about it. We can figure out the word later. But like, instead of that, you're just like, okay, I'm going to roll with it. I'm going to take this energy or these words or these ideas, and I'm going to put them to work for me. You know. Hey, Tribe, I know you enjoyed listening to Spike Gillespie. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday to hear part two. And don't forget this. If you like our show, you love the content, be sure to give us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. For more information, you can visit us at atribecalledyes.com and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget, keep saying yes. Yes.